We were very close to our roots and our language. It was because my mum and dad didn't know English and still don't. So I had to learn how to speak Punjabi. My mum and dad were very focused on giving me an education. And from day one, I was just told what I was going to be. So my dad said, to vakil banana, then vakil banana. I didn't even know what a vakil was. That's when the immigration thing started. And they invited me on one day and they said, just talk about law. And all their phone lines went berserk. People started asking me questions. I just started answering them in Punjabi. They were like, it's a hit. You need to come back and do this next week. I started MATV in 2007. Same format. I'm just going to sit down in front of a camera, take phone calls. And that's when stuff started going viral. I just thought if I deliver something with a bit of humour, then people will remember that. The community just gave me that role that you need to become the person who bridges the gap. But I, I hate that position. I hate that responsibility. When I was drinking every other day, nothing happened to me, mate. When I started eating salads, I started drinking protein shakes. I'm not a heart attack again. See, my legacy is doing something that my kids can look back and be proud of and say, that's my dad. Welcome back to the Coachcast podcast. My guest today is a TV host and immigration guru. Welcome, Hajar Bangal. How are you doing? I'm good. How about yourself? I'm good. I'm good. That that uh, are you used to that name now, immigration guru? Because obviously the BBC show and things. Yeah, sort of. Uh, you know, but um, people. I'm just used to like people saying oh, Hajar Bhaji, Hajar Bhaji. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> people who don't know me like Hajar Bhaji. <laughs> You're almost like Bono and Adele. It's just Hajar, Hajar, Hajar. Like the one name now, isn't it? It's just yeah, like, yeah. It's almost <laughs> like. <laughs> I haven't got any other names. That's <laughs> so on. Um, what I like to do at the beginning of each podcast is sort of take a, a trip down memory lane. So what were you like as a kid? What was your upbringing like? Oh, God. Cultural oh. background. Oh, right. Okay. So basically, I'm born in a town called Romford in Essex. Mm -hmm. So it's a predominantly Gora town. I was born in 1975. Um, it was, I grew up in a town called Raynham. It's like a bend. It wasn't a like a, a town as such. So it was a village. We only had about 20, 25 Punjabi families there. Um, so for us, it was, you know, a predominantly white area uh, next to lovely places such as Dagnum, Greys, Tilbury, Barking, which were also known as quite um, racist right-wing <laughs> areas, NF and BNP strongholds and areas like that. So I went to school um, with pretty much all white people. I was the only Asian person in my school and there was only other one black kid in my whole secondary school. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So They're not diverse at all. Not diverse at all. So I grew up there. Despite this sort of background, we were very close to our roots and our language, mm -hmm. um, which was good because it was because my mum and dad didn't know English and still don't. Mm -hmm. And so I had to learn how to speak Punjabi. And I did, and I watched a lot of Hindi films and Punjabi films on VHS when we were growing up. But to give you a background, so like facilities to other people, which were just normal, like getting a, a Atida Bura or getting Adrak Lassan, yeah, or Mercha. Like now people go, oh, we used to go around out of our shop, had a shop down the road. We used to have to travel 11 miles into okay. Ilford and into Ilford Lane green lane green street in order just to get the basic sort of stuff that wasn't available around our time in our local shops is that because that was more of like a, an ethnic stronghold at, at that time yeah yeah so we had to go into the asian places and so we went into them to get um our, our shopping so to get my hindi films and hindi tapes bollywood tapes and punjabi tapes 
I had to go to Green Street in, in, in Upton Park near the West Ham football ground, which was about an hour journey from us just to do that. And, you know, it wasn't like going Soho Road and you're living on Rookery Road and coming off and, you know, yeah. you've got all the shops on your doorstep, even for suits, Punjabi suits and all of that. The, the women had to go into Green Street. So that's how, how it was really that the upbringing was. My dad was very... Um, my mom and dad were very focused on giving me an education because they're uneducated themselves. Mm-hmm. So they made sure that, you know, I, I wanted the education. And from day one, I was just told what I was going to be. I didn't really have a choice. So my dad said, vakil vakil I didn't even know what a vakil was. And so um, <laughs> I wanted to be a teacher. I think that went out the window. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, my dad pretty much laid it all down for me. At that time, you know, I used to think, what is this? You know, why is dad doing that? And then, it was all worked out for the for the good, and um, yeah, that was it. My upbringing until I was about even my sixth form, um, I was about the only Asian there in my whole sixth form. So it was a uh, that was a sort of upbringing. But we're very close to our language. I watched a lot of films. I watched a lot of Amitabh Bachchan films, Mitten films, Jitinder Tarminder films. So my Hindi is very good as well. My spoken Hindi is very good. And one summer I was um, bored, and I was fourteen, and in the summer holidays and. So I'd ask my mum, can you teach me how to read and write Punjabi? And because our nearest Gurdwara was 10 miles away as well. Oh, wow, okay. Yeah, so our nearest Gurdwara was Barking. Right. Yeah, which was, in effect, you know, on the underground, about 10 railway stations away. So it was quite, you know, quite far away. And um, mum just taught me at home. So mum taught me how to read and write Punjabi. I, did a, I decided to do an A-level in it and a GCSE in it. I remember when I did my GCSE, um, I was the only one in my whole borough, in the London Borough of Havering, who sat that exam. So there was one me in a big school hall. You can imagine me sitting in the middle of a school hall, big one, and three invigilators. And I said to him, why are you here? Who am I going to copy? There's no one I'm going to copy here. <clears throat> do yourself a favour. Go home to your kids and family. But yeah, they sat there. And, I, and the same for the A-level. Two years later, I sat the A-level in Punjabi. I got A's at both. But I remember when I applied for my place at uni through UCAS, we used to have the system then, mm-hmm. and um, yeah, Ucker and PCAS it used to be called, and then it became UCAS. And they said to me very clearly, all the unis, we won't accept your Punjabi A-level and any grading or points. How come? And I said, why? And I said, they go, but that's your native language. And I said, well, English is all the white people's <laughs> language. And you, and you take that. And I said, I've done that as well. And I, and I said, it's yeah. not as if I was born speaking Punjabi or I've lived in India. I've lived my whole life in Essex, yeah. which is far from India. <laughs> yeah. Did so, they accept it eventually or not? No, no, they never accepted it at the time. Never accepted it. I don't know if they accept it now, but I find that a bit, you know, um, I just found that a bit of a letdown. Despite that, I still got my grades, mm-hmm. went to uni. And that's where life changed, really, when I went to uni. Yeah, we'll, we'll sort of get onto the law route in a second, but I just want to ask, like, because you were so far from, like, um, well, the culture, really, do you think that reinforces it? Because there's that sort of, there's that sort of emphasis from the, your, your parents to be like, we don't want to lose this because you're like, so far from like, maybe Ilford and all these places. Yeah, I, I think, in a way, but I just think my culture and all that came from a lot of education. So mm-hmm. I did a lot of background, I'd watch a lot of uh, films, um, we'd do a lot of reading. I spent a lot of time in our local Raynham library doing a lot of reading. Yeah. So I, I did that. Nothing was available on the internet. The internet didn't even exist then. Yeah. So, you know, there 
females. There were only females. So, so, there was, so yeah, and even they didn't want to know. So, so yeah, when you're the only Asian in the school, mate, it's hard. It's hard. Right. So uh, it's like, um, yeah, at that sort of time, I did a lot of reading. And it was more out of Majibudi because it just became normal because my mum and dad still was oh it's so educated, uneducated. They like, you know, they hard they didn't pass out in school, they didn't do their GCC equivalents in school, but they put a great emphasis on education. And that was the only way I could communicate with them. For people in my generation who were born in the 70s and 80s, perhaps early 80s, yeah, um, they'll identify with this. So whenever this was a situation, whenever someone phoned our house. Yeah, my mum would pick it up and she'd go, hello? And she'd go, yeah, 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 for about like two or three minutes. And then she'd say, <laughs> I said, but mum, why did you just spend like five minutes on the phone going, yeah, yeah, okay, too, but you didn't even know what you were saying. And like, same thing, like when someone would knock on the door and it'd be a white person, it'd be like, hajab So people like me, kids in my sort of era in the 70s and early 80s, and even earlier in the 60s were born here, they spent majority of their life and probably still do as interpreters and translators for their parents. Yeah. So by the time I was nine and 10, I was corresponding with council and writing letters to the council and back, you know, writing out checks and dealing with my mum and dad's financial sort of stuff, filling out their forms. And you could become almost like a personal assistant. <laughs> almost like a Punjabi personal assistant, like a citizen's advice bureau. Yeah. Then mum's mates would come and I'd do that as well. And then, you know, and that sort of time writing letters, at that time it was all about letters. Mm-hmm. You know, no one really used faxes either. So it was just for about letters and there was no, we can't just fire off an email. You had to write a letter, yeah. type it out. You had to write it on a proper letterhead. And that's why my English was very good. So grammatically, my English was very good. And um, I always got high marks in English because if you're schooled in them sort of times, days, you know how to use your full stops, commas, and all your semicolons. And so grammatically, I was very good. Our maths was very good as well, because in that time, we hardly ever used calculators. So the yeah. first thing in an Asian household, your dad gets you to do is learn your times tables. Yeah. Off, up and, and like, and normally you have to learn to twelve, but if you're Asian, you have to learn to twenty. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you need to know them like that. So you need to, and if you don't you get beats what we used to right so so it was it was good grounding in a way and it was a great emphasis on education and but that stood me so good for uni because when i went to uni i saw asians there well first rule interaction with a lot of asian people in group as friends i saw people there who couldn't even write out a check mm. i'm like, like oh mom and dad did that i'm like oh, oh, what you like you didn't act as an interpreter. And that's when it all sort of changed. Like when I realized that, oh my God, there's loads of Asians in the country, but I just didn't know where they were. I just haven't been Wolverhampton or yeah. Southall or, you know, or Handsworth, you know, I don't, I don't know. I didn't know Leicester. I didn't know where these guys were, but then I met them all, or Gravesend. Then I met them all at, um, at uni, so. And, and it probably put you in good stead, obviously all the correspondence. And now that's pretty much what you do for a living. Do you know what I mean? Like with the law. Uh, law career yeah yeah and it's like it was good correspondence it made you think about what you're going to write you know made you realize what you're going to reply you had to research stuff so if you're writing to the council about a driveway and they're quoting an act at you then you have to sit down and read it and think right well this is what they're saying and this is according to this what they're saying and that's how it was sort of 
was and or you know if you're uh, debating a council tax bill or whatever so it's it was quite um, an experience and it was growing up look at it now and I think my kids grow up totally differently to that but yeah. I think that, that held me in good stead and hence in life that's been really good because if I can walk into a room of white British people and I can mix it up with them I can walk into a room of thisies and I can mix it up with them I can sit down with the aunties and I can mix it up with them because I never had no sisters so when the aunties used to come and mum was very ill mum had a back problem and she still has I used to make a lot of teas thisie jar yeah. I used to um, like put the matiai out and the auntie and I just used to sit down with them and listen to their convos and listen to all the juggly and all the gala what's going on so whilst watching my film you know so it's really so that's why I communicate with the auntie very well and they seem to love me the uncles I can sit down with them and I can mix with them and the kids I can sit down with kids and become a kid so for me it's really good I always say like I'm like an all-rounder I can bat and bowl and field and I could so I can do a bit of everything and that's um really sort of helped me and that was a lot of it due to my grand uh, my upbringing there 100%. I was going to mention that later on, but uh, may as well touch on it now. Is that it, it's sort of like a multi-generational thing, isn't it? Because you appeal to the older uh, the older upbringing, but you also appeal to the, the kids like my yeah. age, like early 20s. Yeah. And then obviously the people that are your age have lived the experiences that you've lived through as well. So you hit in every single angle. Yeah, I think I just naturally the community just gave me that role that you need to become the person who bridges the gap. Yeah, and I think that's where we have a problem. So the youngsters feel they can't communicate with their elders and you know there's a lot of problems when it comes to relationships trying to explain to them you know I'll, I'll tell you straight I wasn't allowed, I wasn't allowed to go to the cinema until I was 18 yeah. Yeah, because my parents thought that if you go to the cinema that's what they thought they thought yeah. going to the cinema going to and when I see kids now like 11 year old and they're walking down in Westfield and I'm like uh, what and like they're going oh let's go Nando's I was like um, Nando's. I didn't get to eat at Nando's till I was thirty-five. <laughs> <laughs> got phones and like, uh, I remember I got my first phone when I was eighteen, mobile phone. So like, I, and my kids have got iPads now. Yeah. And I told my kids, I said I didn't get an iPad till I was about thirty-three. <laughs> and I said, a- and, I, and I said, you are nine <laughs> to my daughter. And I said, you've had an iPad for two or three years. <laughs> and I said, uh, and you know, you know, and you're fizzing around on your iPads. And my little one, you know, a three-year-old, he's on his like a little um, iPad, and I'm like, I didn't get that. I, you know, we didn't get a laptop till we didn't get a PC until I was 21. It's that just not me. That's people, all people of my age. So anyone who's born between about 1970 and 1980, they're sitting there at home and they're nodding because they know they go, yeah, we know exactly how you feel, what the experience is, you know. And um, girls, like, well, let's talk about girls. Girls weren't allowed to cut their hair till they got married. Oh, okay, yeah. yeah. So girls weren't allowed to cut. Their, imagine not being allowed to cut your hair until you're married, and especially that that was a lot of girls in the Midlands weren't allowed to do that. And a lot of girls are probably sitting home thinking, "Yeah, the first time I got my hair cut was after I got married because that if you got your hair cut, it was seen as disrespectful in the community." So there were generation gaps then as well. Mm-hmm. And then that's why you know people see uh, they fill the role. I try and act as the bridge between the now generation my generation and the older generation and they seem to get it i get a lot of kids who say a job we've been telling our mum and dad this for five years yeah 
and they don't listen to us and they just brush us off. You come on a TV in five minutes and tell them exactly the same thing. And they go and do it. They go, nope, Hajab said it now. It's all right. It's like I'm an authority on stuff. But I, don't, I hate that position. I hate that responsibility. But if it helps bridge the gap, then I'm all for it. But I think it's because like in, in our community, especially, like there's a lot of topics that are, are deemed sort of taboo, which are reality. Do you know what I mean? And then obviously when people touch on them, especially... Um, so I had um, uh, Joss Billin on a, f- uh, a few episodes ago. Oh, and, yeah, yeah. And he he, appro- he was saying, like, I approach it with comedy because it becomes a bit easier. Yeah, yeah. Do you know what I mean? So you can talk I, about I, these taboo topics and then I've it becomes... Seen, yeah. And I I use that as well, obviously, on my shows. And, I, and yeah. I've used that sort of a way, but I've used comedy that appeals to the elders and the youngsters, whereas, you know, just take it all across the board. Oh, I'm limited. In what I can do as a comedian because I'm also regulated by the law society. Yeah, I was I was gonna mention that. We can't go and make make videos like Just Rain or you know Lily or Santar and all these guys. You know, I wish I could, I'd smash it. <laughs> they know that, they know that, they all know that. Yarp was let off the leash, <laughs> it'd go, it'd go bad. But I can't do that. And sometimes I sit there and I applaud their stuff and I watch it and I think, yeah, this is really good. And I see it like, I see myself with a bit different. So my humor is done live. Yeah. Everything I've done is live, like we are now, right? Everything's done is live. So I don't have time to sit, make a script, make a plot, have five cameras at different angles. I've always had this one camera in one angle with a phone line and just me on a Friday, sit down live till eight, till Friday, eight o'clock. And just, I don't know who's going to phone up, what they're going to say. I just say what probably everyone's thinking at home. So for me, comedy is about that. It's about the instant reflection. And maybe that's not really comedy as much as it is wit. Quick-witted, we say, obviously, yes. some people. So we say people, you know, um, in Punjabi, we call it hazard jawab. means he's got an answer for everything already. Um, whereas the YouTubers now, they're a bit different. They have time, they have a budget, they have scripts. I don't have a budget, mate. I just sit down, my budget is me. Like, uh, you know, they have all the makeup done. They have time to edit the videos. So, and then sometimes I look at them and I think, you've had like two months to make this video. And is that the best you can do? My Laddi Lando was better than that. Or my <laughs> love you, love you, Julie was better than that. And I did it like in five seconds on the spot. So it's, uh, you know, I, I do enjoy watching some of the content, but some of it is, I sit there and I think, oh my God, man, no wonder you're, you have a generation gap. Your granddad is probably looking at it and thinking, oh, look at what beer goof has my son given birth to? <laughs> but yeah, so it's a, uh, everyone does their own thing, but I didn't go into, co- I didn't do comedy intentionally. Mine just happened because I kept on getting asked funny questions. Yeah. I just thought, I'd, you know, I'd just tell it as it is. Have you always been uh, quick-witted from like a young age or is that something that you develop like obviously when you have more interactions and you hear similar stories and you're thinking, oh, not this again, I already have a job from last time? And uh, I, I think it's inherited because my dad is like about 20 times funnier than me. Yeah. So when people meet my dad, they just forget who I am. They're like, okay, now we just want to sit down with your dad. I've had mates over for a few drinks and they just said, like, you go out, mate. We're happy sitting with your dad. <laughs> I'd sat with them all night and they just kept us entertained. And I'm the same. So I could turn my TV off and spend three hours with dad just talking. Mm-hmm. He's so funny. And um, anyone who's met him will know he's funny. And I think I picked a lot of that up on the way. Um, I was a big Mir Mittal fan. So I'm still a big Mir Mittal fan. Big Govinda fan. So I love yeah. comedies. I've been watching Benny Hill. We used to watch Kenny Everett in our day. So we used to watch, um, you know, so that sort of 
humor is funny and it appeals to me. I watch uh, Whose Line Is It Anyway, which is brilliant for quick wit. So if you want to watch that, but I think it's just, it's just there. And it just started happening. Even people that knew me at uni, they will always say her job was quite funny because he had an answer for everything. And that's sort of just the way I've been. And I just use that style now. I, the good thing about this, right? The good thing about telling the truth and being you is you don't have to lie or cover up or pretend to be something that you're not. Yeah. Like, yeah, I'm just, that is just me. So I'm happy going through life just being me because then I don't have, people have no expectations. I don't have to live up to any expectations. I don't have to be always funny anyone i'm just like what you see is what you get is pretty much it's not an act or anything like that so and you don't have to think about it because it's you can be more consistent over time it's natural yeah exactly yeah yeah. so it's natural you don't have to think about it you don't have to have a script you don't have to have anything ready so you know even when like i do hosting event hosting and um charity events and stuff like that i you know whatever people are there i just use them with them play with the jokes on that sort of thing use my one-liners yeah. I think I've just become like king of the one-liners and I think that's what I'm known for. But yeah, I think so, especially for like my generation because you've got the the Instagram pages like I'm just basically them sort of like dissy meme pages and yeah. you always have your one-liners coming up on that feed as well, especially like <laughs> right, the yeah. COVID mask situation pops into mind where I was oh, howling yeah, at yeah. that. <laughs> and that, that wasn't like meant to be a funny video, Anna. Yeah. Because when I did it, I'll tell you what happened is our studios in Wembley and it's on Ealing Road. And I was just went for a walk. And I, in lockdown, I went for a walk and I thought, I'll go for a walk. All I saw were people wearing masks, like one had it dangling from his ear and one had it underneath his nose. And one had it on his chin. You know, I just thought, don't these people know how to wear a mask? I think I have to tell everybody how to wear a mask. So then I took the mask out of my car and I took it to the studio and I said, Belly Galdamatons, I don't know that's not how to wear a bloody mask. And then I thought, how am I going to explain it to people? And then I just thought, I'll use this analogy of the gacha one. And, you know, that when you wear a gacha, you wear it all the way up to your waist. You don't leave it dangling down your knees, right? Exactly. And then uh, luckily dangle rhymed with bangle. And it just yeah. <laughs> sort of, and, uh, it sort of just uh, became a sort of thing. But yeah, I, I was surprised at that, that people had cut that and it gone viral. And, you know, whenever Diljeet shared it, yeah. and, uh, you know, I, I had a couple of cricketers share it, Sandeep Singh, the cricketer, he shared it. And people were like, oh, my God, this is, like, true funny, so funny. And I said, well, it probably is funny, but the example is, look, you need to wear your mask all the way above your nose because otherwise everything can still go in through your nose. So what is the point? It's not a defense decoration. <laughs> exactly. It's it's funny because, it's obviously, again, as we're saying, it's, it's saying the truth but in sort of a funny way that it, the message gets put across because, obviously, at the time, a lot of up and weren't really taking it seriously and, and not having the masks on. I think with what happens is I learned early, a long time ago when I first started my media stuff, that if you've got to deliver the truth, the truth hits you like a bullet or an mm-hmm. arrow. Yeah, it's going to hurt. Uh, or it's like medicine. You won't like the taste of it, but it's good for you. So yeah. it's got to be delivered in a funny way. So, you know, when you're trying to give a kid some medicine or you're trying to give him something healthy to eat and you pretend like, oh, you're making an aeroplane or stuff <laughs> like this and you just make it more enjoyable. And then... I just thought if I deliver something with a bit of humor, then people will remember that for next time. And people will, you know, they won't take it as sharply and they'll get the message. And I, and I think that sort of works really because no one is more hated than that, than the person who speaks the truth. So for me, it's never been uh, a popularity contest. I never worry about how popular I am, how many likes I get, 
and all of that. I'm not here to be popular because I know in the job that I do, I told the truth. I probably upset 99% of people, but that, that's not my fault. I can only tell you what the truth is. Your reaction to it, I can't control people's reaction to it. Yeah. I'm not here to sugarcoat the truth. I'm not Willy Wonka. That's what I always say. I, say. I say I don't sugarcoat things, you know. So it's like if people know, and our problem is in that community, we've got used to listening to what we want to hear and not what we need to hear. Mm-hmm. And hence, once we've listened to what we want to hear and not what we need to hear, we end up in all the problems. Then I get that phone call on a Friday night saying, "This has happened. This has happened. This has happened." I'm like, "Well, you know, why didn't you just do what we were told to do?" Go, going back to the the uni thing so obviously your dad said you had to be a lawyer which is i think uh, a lot of up and a still can probably relate to doctor lawyer engineering and them sort of career paths yeah accountants <laughs> and you wanted that as well yeah exactly um but when you get to uni is that when you decide which path you want to go down like instead of real estate choosing immigration or why why did you gravitate to, towards immigration i didn't gravitate towards immigration until i finished uni at okay. uni, um, what happened is I did a year at uni and then I had a reset. And then I said to my dad, I don't want to do uni anymore. Right. And he looked at me and he gave me a shovel as a builder. And he goes, here you go, son. You don't need any qualifications of this. For the next year, you're going to work with me. So I worked with dad. And at least we used to get up six o'clock, finish work at 10. All our roti was behi. You know, we used to have that in the morning, take that, eat it out of a Fermos flask at work. It was a real tough time. It was a real tough time. But I worked with my dad. One, it gave me an appreciation of what he does and how hard he's worked. Mm-hmm. Right? So that I, that knocked it into me. But then at the end of that year, I just thought, if you're good at something and you have a quality, why don't you just do it instead of like doing this, which you're struggling with? Mm-hmm. you know if you're good at building do it you know if you're good at teaching do it i was good at education i was good at languages so i thought why you know this you're struggling with it you're not a builder my friend Anna. so why don't you just go back to uni so i did i went back to uni finished my uni and then uni was a great experience a great experience so i, I met a lot of people a lot of this i realized that there's a lot of desis in the in the uk and i just hadn't met them just hadn't interacted with them and i thought i was desi but i met people this year to me when i met the wolverhampton guys like with their perms and all their much much for the you know with their earrings and all that i thought my god i look this is like up and asking you today's yeah up and asking like and they were now you realize how influenced they were right and they were there and uh, you know they just had that then i met the gravesend boys you know, who were like sort of wannabe cockneys. <laughs> and uh, I met the Southall boys who was very close-knit and, uh, you know, everything rolled around the airport and Southall and they, they knew the way around. But before I hadn't met these guys and there was a common theme. They'd all come from areas and schools where Asians were dominant, mm. you know? And so they had a total outlook. You know, um, my version of what I faced in racism and their version of what they faced was totally different. Yeah. They were in majorities in their schools. And um, I wasn't. So that was a big shock for me. But I adjusted well. After I finished uni, then came the hard bit of finding a job. I just couldn't find a job anywhere. Mm-hmm. I couldn't find a job anywhere. So um, I tried to find a training contract. I even lived in Birmingham for a year. 
I had a friend at uni and his brother was a lawyer and uh, he said, oh, he'll give you a training contract. So I went and worked for him for free for a year. Um, and as part of that, he made me live with illegal immigrants right. on Stratford Road. Okay. I don't know if you know where Stratford Road, Birmingham well, but I used to like uh, live on Stratford Road in Spark Hill. It's not the best of areas. Sorry to anyone that lives in Spark Hill. <laughs> yeah, so there used to be a murder there every couple of weeks. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, that's how lovely it was. But I lived with illegal immigrants. And that's when the immigration thing started. And I realized that, um, you know what? These people are in problems. And why have they come here on the back of lorries and in boats? And they, the one common theme was they go, we didn't know there's any other way to come. And so education was the problem. Our people weren't educated enough. And my first radio show was actually while I was living in uh, Birmingham. So Stratford Road Godwara, uh, uh, the Pradhan then was a person called Mourn Singh. Mm. And um, so they, a guy called Raj Kang and Jatinda from Walsall, they ran a radio station for 28 days called Radio Nangana. And I had a limited license. I had about a two mile reach. And they invited me on one day and they said, just talk about law. So I just started talking about immigration. And all their phone lines went berserk. So they had about six phone lines, they went berserk and it all started flashing and people started asking me questions and they were like, well, just answer them. So I just started answering them in Punjabi. And um, they were like, it's a hit, you need to come back and do this next week. I said, yeah, you're for four weeks. And they go, no, it doesn't matter. So I did four weeks there. And it was like one of their most popular shows and the popular hours there. And so, uh, you know, I was uh, quite surprised. And I thought, hold on, this is like, a, there's a lot of people in our community who aren't, don't know what they're doing. Well, there's a lack of education. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, I was in Birmingham for that year. I didn't get the training contract. The person lied to me that he said he could get me a training contract. I used to work seven days and like living, and I'm from London, so I couldn't even go back to Essex. And I remember the worst day was on Christmas day, this guy made me work and I was sat on my phone there and I was sat on the phone to mum crying. Cause she was like, you haven't got a crane drone, right? You're working for free. And, um, you know, and I remember my dad came and got me. My dad came and got me on boxing day and he says, I'm bringing you back home. He goes, you're being had by this person. Mm. And actually the, the guy who was at uni with me um, whose brother was the one who was leading me on. Yeah. His wife, I owe a lot to. She's the one who actually told me when I went to dinner around the house that, look, you know what? I wouldn't trust these two. You, you haven't got a signed contract. You haven't got anything. I was just a naive kid at the age of what, 22, 23. And our kids now were up more sweet, street smart. I remember no internet then, no email, no Facebook, yeah. no nothing. You know, before we do stuff now, there's a hundred ways we can check stuff on the internet and we can do, um, you know, we'd get advice forums and Facebook groups and all of that. And we know what half, before you even do something, 80% you know what you're doing. Yeah. But in that time, there wasn't. So I'll always thank her. And um, she just told me, she goes, yeah, he's my husband, but I wouldn't trust these two. They're thick as thieves. They're probably having you on. So that was it. That was why I was crying to my mum on the phone. That's my dad heard it. And then he come and got me. And then I started fitting windows. Okay. With my dad, because I couldn't get a job. Yeah. And we went to fit windows at a solicitor's. Fun. So we were fitting windows at a solicitor's. Yeah. And the guy asked me, he goes, What do you do? And I said, I'm a law graduate. 
and I've done my LPC. Yeah. Why are you fitting windows with your dad? And I said, I can't get a job. No one's giving me a break. And he goes, come and work for me. Yeah. So I went to work for him. Well, I and didn't know that. I didn't know that. So, because I've seen like, um, uh, I did a bit of research, obviously just went on your website and things. And <laughs> and, uh, and it said that you like grad, um, got your uh, practicing license in 2002 and then set up your own shop in 2004. That's right. But I graduated in 98. So oh. it took me four years to do a two-year practice thing. Right, two okay. years just to find it. Right, okay, okay. Anyone so that's who's the a law student now yeah. is looking for a training contract, it took me four years then to do yeah. it. So, because for every tr training contract vacancy, there are about 3,000 applicants. Mm -hmm. And every year they churn out more. Yeah. So getting a training contract is like the Holy Grail. It is, really yeah. um, people now. The one thing I did when I set up my own firm was I thought I'm never going to treat people the way I got treated. Mm -hmm. So I, I, you know, I, I give Asians a chance. I give them a community. I give them an opportunity. I don't make them work for free and all of that. And you know, we, we I respect them. Don't give, you know, I give them the stuff that I wasn't given in life. So, but like I said, I got my break when I went to fit a window at, at an office with my dad. Sometimes it's just meant to be. That was just it. I was just a bit like, okay, this is meant to be. Yeah, so and one of them things is that after all them hard knocks, them years of hard knocks, it's like God just gave me a break and I just took it. So was that firm also involved in immigration or was that yeah, yeah. just... It was very big in immigration. Oh, okay. Very big in immigration. And so, um, you know, um, uh, all they used to do was immigration. And during that same time, were you still continuing on with the radio shows? Um, no, then I didn't so like do the radio shows and then I was just doing that. But what I did decide to do, I thought before I go on radio again, right, then I'm going to swallow the Bible on this immigration. I'm going to do a lot of research. Remember, I was a bit of a library nerd Yeah. So before I was 18. Like at uni, all I did was really got drunk and went to gigs. <laughs> like, yeah, and I got a, I got a two two. And but if I'd actually studied, I could have walked out of there with a first. So but the fact was, I just didn't. I, I knew all the gigs, all the venues. I met all of my friends at uni, all the Bangla bands. I knew all the songs off by heart. I was a wicked singer. I was a wicked uni singer. Um, uh, me and um, I got a friend called Satman. I did a podcast with him as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He'll tell you. So like uh, uh, me and him, we used to sing a lot at uni. He was a he's a very he's obviously his levels much more than what mine is. But you know, so I was a very good amateur singer. Yeah. I was always the coach singer. So on the dance I was very good with my stuff and all that that was like with uni was for me it was an experience it's like I got out of jail yeah yeah for me it's yeah. like I got out of jail and it was um I never went back to jail after that <laughs> I think a lot of people can sort of sympathize and relate to that because I feel like that still does happen now to to a certain extent maybe to a lesser extent but it still does happen now um when so when you when you obviously got your training contract qualified a couple yeah. of late, years later, you've set up your own um, business. And yeah. then when did you start getting back into the radio? And like, when did you start seeing, I don't know, I, I, I want to say sort of viral success out of that side of things either. Um, I started uh, radio again when I started with Radio XL. Mm -hmm. So um, I also did a little one on radio, uh, 
New Sound, which was a bit like they call New Sound Radio now, right? Okay. And East Ham, but then I did I did a couple of months on there. But Radio XL, I started doing in a, with a program called uh, with a guy called Vicky Vicky Gill. So I did a program with him that was very successful. We did it for about two years. I started MATV in two thousand and seven, so on the TV show. So mm -hmm. I started doing all of that. Um, same format, just and I decided I don't need a host. I'm just going to sit down in front of a camera, just like you're doing today. I'm just going to take take phone calls, and I did. And that's when stuff started going viral. When YouTube came out first, and then it was on there. I didn't have a YouTube channel until two years after YouTube was out. Yeah. People people had got hundreds of thousands of views by uploading my clips, and I wasn't even getting credit for them. <laughs> and they were going, oh, they were sending them to me, and they were sending to me, and they go. Buddy, have you seen this? And I said, like, of course I've seen it. I'm in it. <laughs> funny. I remember doing like doing that bit live. And they're like, no, no, have a look, have a look. And you're on this. And so, yeah, I, I think viral success didn't start sort of coming to like that 2008, 2009. It's probably because you could put a picture to the words. That with radio, it's probably harder to share clips around. Whereas yeah. obviously when you're on TV, it's a bit different. Yeah. And like radio, it's pretty hard for people to, yeah, have a, and it's got a visual image. Mm -hmm. Visual images help more with memory, so yeah, uh, it's like then when that coming on, and it becomes sort of cult viewing, because I remember I used to get messages from like youngsters who were like eighteen, nineteen, and they were like, "Yeah, we watch your show," and I said, "Why are you watching my show for? It's all about immigration." And they're like, "No, nah, no, nah, we just watch it for a laugh." I'm like, yeah. "Watch find out what's going on in the world," and they go, oh, "We watch it with three generations." So like, I would have three generations watching that show, and that's where I think bridging that gap sort of came on and doing that and then I've been doing that since 2007 then one day the BBC picked me up and they phoned me and they go um we want you to do the same show but on the BBC this is about 2010 and then I started doing that show with Now mm -hmm. it's now on BBC5 or Radio 5 but yeah it's a BBC Asian Network and I still do that on BBC Asian Network I've done that 10-11 years on on BBC Asian Network with and they actually coined the phrase immigration guru and uh, you know, from there, I did that. Um, Sky TV, Al Jazeera, you name it. Now, pretty much there. You know, uh, all the new, all the radio stations, talk radio. I do a lot on talk radio. And um, so, BBC Five. I had the BBC do a documentary on me. Uh, uh, BBC World Service did a documentary a day in my life. And then, I had a phone call once from someone said. Um, Oh, you're from Essex, aren't you? And I said, yeah. They go, well, there's another Essex person who wants to come and meet and film with you. I said, who's that? They go, Ross Kemp. I said, what? I go, yeah, you know, Grant. And I said, what, Grant? And then go, yeah, <laughs> So then Ross Kemp came and he did a documentary in 2016 and I took him around Southall. And I remember that experience because as I was walking around Southall with him, the streets of Southall, I started getting messages on my Facebook wall saying, have I just seen you walk down King Street with Grant Mitchell? <laughs> <laughs> And I go, what? I go, yeah. And, uh, you know, so it's quite an ex experience that. And um, he spent a couple of days in South Wales, was filmed in my office, and I took him around and showed him the problems that immigrants have and, you know, the, the, the problems um, that they face. So we do that. And then from there, the Bollywood films that we've done. And that was another experience as well. Great. And, you know, doing done about three now and got uh, another two, three ready for release. What's that like? Because obviously we mentioned like just before that you were with your VHS tapes when the auntie had come around, you'd be watching yeah. your Bollywood movies and now you're, you're in them. 
this is a guy who grew up on Bollywood films, right? And Bollywood songs. So I was working on a Saturday and at two o'clock it was time to go. And I never pick my phone up unless it's a number I know. And it was, this was an unknown number. So there's no way I'm going to pick that up. Mm-hmm. Then I thought, ah, Jello, Jacqueline. And I thought, but if it's from India, you're going to have to sit there and listen to it. And it's a Saturday. It's <laughs> your time. And I just thought, nah, just do it anyway. So the first thing I picked the phone up, say hello. And goes, hello, sir, I'm calling from Bombay. And I thought, ah, Damn. <laughs> now I've got to talk to him for about an hour. I said, yeah, well, how can I help you? He goes, I'm talking about, I'm talking from Bombay. I need to speak to Mr. Bangor. And I said, yeah, what is it about? And uh, is it about visas? And he goes, I'm a film director. And, um, you know, I want to speak to Mr. Bangor. And I said, well, do you want to call people over as a crew? Have you come to do shooting here? Because we do visas for that. And, right, and so they said, no, no, no. And I said, well, what is it related? Is it some personal advice? Do you want to migrate? Is the film industry doing badly? And yeah. he goes, stop talking about visas. <laughs> And I said, all right. I said, what is it? Yeah. He goes, we, we're doing a film with Jimmy Shegil and Niru Bajwa and Sadgun Mehta. And he goes, we're filming it in Canada. We've seen your videos on YouTube and we were going to cast a person as you. Right? And then our writer goes, well, why don't you just ask him to play himself? And so we thought we'd ring you. And at first I thought, is this a prank? <laughs> a joke? I said, I'm a vakil, not an actor. And they go, no, we know. And they go, but for the, you know, for that we need you in our film. And in Canada. And they said, check us out. So I spent, so I spent the next couple of weeks checking out. And it was all legit. And um, so I said, all right. So this, you know, they booked me in. And I went to um, Canada. And my first day on set, I wasn't filming, but I just went to see what a film set looks like. I'd never seen one. Yeah. Despite doing a lot of TV work, I'd never seen a film set. So I went into the film set. There was Niru Bajwa there. There was a couple of other actors there. And like, um, there was this guy filming a scene. So now I know he's a famous YouTuber. At the time, I didn't know who he was. Mm-hmm. And he came up to me in between the scene and he goes, excuse me, are you the YouTube immigration guy? And he said, <laughs> what? And I said, yeah, for want of a better phrase, I suppose that's me. And they go, that's a great act that you do, bro. That's great the way you all set it up with the collars and all of that. That's great with the character. That's a great character you play. And I said, what do you mean? I said, that's not a character. That's just me. That's real. And he goes, what? He goes, you're a lawyer in real life? And I said, yeah. And he goes, those are real people who call in? And I said, yeah. We've been doing that for the last eight years. And he goes, oh my God, I'm more excited to meet you than I am Niru. <laughs> and now I know that that guy is a very famous YouTuber and does videos with AK Amazing. His name's Aki Kandola. He's acting films. He's actually oh, like yes, uh, and stuff like that. He's a very famous guy. And I was like, ah, and we roomed together. <clears throat> so it was um, quite good. We shared a lot of synergy together. But I, I just remember, I thought, this in Canada, they must call me the YouTube immigration guy. And he goes, yeah, when we were in college, we used to just watch your videos yeah. in Canada. And he goes, in Toronto, Vancouver, Calgary, they got in places like that in the colleges. They just watch your videos, bro. And I said, what? And they go, yeah. And they go, you're quite a big thing in Canada. I thought, really? And they're like, yeah. And I thought, okay, I can understand someone in Birmingham saying that or Smevik saying that, or yeah. saying that, but in like Vancouver. Yeah. So then when we did like, went to Vancouver and Toronto afterwards, then I realized that people did know who I am. And uh, I remember my first scene was I had to shoot with Jimmy Shergill. Now, I've watched Mahobba Day and all of that, and I grew up, this is a guy I've grown, grown up watching, yeah? Like, I, I can't act in front of him. 
And um, I remember, so uh, the first couple of lines that I did, I messed it all up. Messed right. it all up. He looked at me and he goes, do you drink? And I said, yeah. He goes, go and have one. <laughs> so he goes, beg, lucky yeah. So I sent someone to get a bottle, put it in my bottle of water here, put that in. I was the nervous wreck, right? Had a drink, yeah? Man, I smashed my scenes at the park <laughs> in one take. <laughs> and they were like, okay, now we know. <laughs> it was just yeah. the nerves. Like, uh, so yeah, I mean, after that, I, I spent three weeks there filming it. I'm very good friends with him now. We've done another film now called Tumohobe Mahoma. That's coming out for release, hopefully up after the summer when lockdown opens. I did another film called Desi Munde. So um, it's like, you know, I've got two or three more in the pipeline where it's good you know I, I it's an experience i'm one of them guys who think i've got one life i want to try and do everything in one life yeah i yeah. to doing the same thing for that one life so for me it's been brilliant but my main reason was like for my um kid so we had a struggle having kids um it's quite well documented and you know i give i do a lot of programs about that especially people where they can't have kids and alternatives and you know what help there is out there and there's a big lack in asian community for support of that mm -hmm. but, um so after nine years and after being told we couldn't have kids we actually had a kid and um so we've got a girl now her name's cushy and uh you know so for me she's the greatest thing that's ever happened to me so if you know if i, if I say it blatantly like that that she's the greatest thing that ever happened to me and um great and it was just a joy when it happened it was just a shock when um we had our kid but for me it's all about leaving that legacy and uh, i remember we went to watch the film in the cinema my film in the cinema and i took kushi with us and the film came out in 2016-17 so kushi was only about four or five and i said kushi what did you think and uh she goes yeah you were very good talking to the boy <laughs> she really liked talking to like jimmy Sheffield. yeah yeah, and for me, that, that's just it, leaving a legacy for my kids. Our legacy for me, my leaving a legacy, isn't my money, cars, watches, offices, statuses, titles, zameen. That isn't a legacy. My legacy is doing something that my kids can look back and be proud of and say, that's my dad. And for me, that is our real legacy. And leaving all my knowledge that I've learned and everything, hopefully wisdom that I've learned, onto my kids. And that's what it is. And that that is the legacy, just to try and be a good person. 100%. I think you can definitely see that because from obviously the success you shows had, you went on to do other shows like more recently, the Recognize One show. Yeah, and yeah. I've been I've been keeping up with that with, with my parents and uh, mum and dad obviously watch the, uh, the MATV show for a very long time. So when the Recognize One show came out as well, we're watching that. The Kassan show was, I think, the first one. And then as weeks went That's on, right, yeah. or more and topics like you were saying, topics, yeah. So we yeah. sat down and you know, and that came about because um, the Kassans protest that was coming on, and uh, a group approached me and said, "Look, we need to do something." But you know, we've got this idea of doing a fundraiser like children in need, yeah, Kassans in need, but only if you say yes, are we going to proceed with it? If you say no, finish because we only want you to host it. And I said. I've never really done things on a religious channel anymore. My stuff is sort of a bit non-veggie. Yeah. Like, <laughs> you know, like, like veg and like, uh, they said, look, just do it. And then I thought, you know what? It's 
what we can do, I suppose, let's do it. And we went there. And when I went there and saw the setup, I was I was expecting a similar desi setup that I've been used to my whole life, like a camera, that's it, and a couple of bande walking around. And I was expecting it all to be very bad. Yeah. It, it was exactly the opposite. It surpassed all my expectations. When I went onto the set, it was like I was on match of the day with yeah. all that big curved screen and all of that. And, you know, all of that, that was done. Um, I was amazed. And everything that was put together, the whole programming of it, the content, it was brilliant. The guests that we had. And then obviously um, we started appealing for fans. And I think till date, that remains on an Asian channel. It's the largest fundraiser that's ever been done in six hours. So we raised £400,000 in six hours. Wow. Seva Society, who are now um, helping the families of the farmers who have been deceased in the protest because 200 people have over 200 300 people have died yeah and so for helping their families out and we're making sure and holding them to account that all the funds are being uh, spent so then we decided look why don't we carry this on into a series of shows and let's talk about the topics that we don't get to talk about so domestic violence women empowerment um kids stuff mm -hmm. for kids we did a kids show you know Vasaki special show um, uh, sexual abuse as well so we, we did all of the cover all these topics mental health which aren't covered in the thing but obviously I had to keep the whole idea of that show that was exactly that show sort of fitted me perfectly mm -hmm. that was a chance for me to bridge that gap yeah we did even if people look back on it now and look at them shows we did bridge that because from that Kassan's in need show the feedback was well you I'm sat here with like eight people in my family watching the show my kids are watching it you know and my parents are watching it my grandparents are watching it and that was great to be able to, to bring Punjabi households or Desi households like that together in front of a screen man what else can I ask for well you know and for, for that I, I'm I'm all about family my emphasis is all my whole life has been about family yeah. I still live with my parents I'm 46 yeah, yeah. yeah I'm still living with my parents and um the only time I've ever lived out is at uni and that year I did at Birmingham. So my kids still live with their, you know, grandparents and all of that. And the emphasis is all on family. You know, we live in a three bedroom house, just like yeah. and it, people probably think Ajap lives in a uh, four million pound mansion. You know, <laughs> and he, and he's like, you know, he's like, uh, he's just got a you know, fancy six bedroom house in four Oaks <laughs> and, you know, or like Knightsbridge and all that. No, I live in Heston in a three bedroom house with my parents, people know where it is. When they see my house, they're quite shocked. They go, is this your house? And I said, yeah, well, where do you want me to live? In Kensington Palace. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What am I going to do with 20 bedrooms? <laughs> but I think that's, again, like the recognised, the people who came from the recognised one show to say like the emphasis on you hosting it. I think it's because like, because everyone has seen you for that long, they, there's, there's that reliability behind the voice. Yeah, I, I, th I think they saw that it was like, this guy, you know, he's a genuine guy. And people will listen to him. I, I don't know what it was, but it's that it seems to have some sort of that, that, you know, there's a lot of trust factor in there because I've never yeah. advised anyone wrongly. So if you've watched the shows, you know, I don't care if people ask me weird questions, you know that, and they try <laughs> and get me out of the system. But I just say it straight as a die. I think that's important. And they don't understand that because people who come from India, they think a lawyer is there to break the rules. Mm -hmm. But actually in this country, a lawyer is there to tell you what the law is yeah. and to help you navigate your way through it. He's not there to break the whole system down 
and they say, no, nah, no, nah, akar, akar, akar. This is how you kill somebody with an axe and get away with it. It's <laughs> not a lawyer's job. And so, but that, you know, so with that, I've always just been straight on the narrow and sort of made myself into a sort of double-edged sword because I'm that brand like everyone trusts. And so, you know, it's, it's a bit of responsibility, perhaps that I didn't want or need, but it's there now, so I just take it on. Have you, we were talking earlier, obviously, about the SRA and things. Have you ever had, like, any in uh, contact with them for any of the things that have been said in the show? or Because some of it sometimes is, like, a, a bit on the line, if that makes sense. You know what? Touch wood, I've never had a, si- a single complaint. That's good. Off con- complaint, I've never had an SRA complaint. I always wondered that because, obviously, like, it is... You always hear about like um, you get like the law weekly magazines and things. Yeah, and yeah of course, you, of course. Yeah. People get like struck Ooh, off for all sorts. Them, of I've got more there. Yeah. <laughs> but then there's like there's guys who get struck off for like Facebook posts or whatever on a Friday night yeah, and, and yeah. things, and yeah. and then you're on TV saying you're a bit of a risky guy because you've got this missus here and that missus there, and you're asking me which one can I get legal by and things. Yeah, yeah. And... <laughs> the thing is, once again, as lawyers, we can help people navigate the law, right? Yeah, we can't make the choices for them. Mm-hmm. We can tell them what the options are, and that's what we do. That's what I do. So if someone says to me, "Buddy, I've got a choice to marry a British girl or a Polish girl," yeah, the first thing I say, I wish I had that choice. <laughs> I had to marry a Punjabi one, mate. <laughs> yeah? I like, uh, you know, I, I didn't get that choice. So first of all, you're quite a lucky geezer. But then ultimately, you know, you can only tell them the consequences of their actions, and they're the ones who've got to take the action. So. Uh, you know, I don't see as if I do anything um, wrong against the SRA or anything like that. And mm-hmm. if I had, I wouldn't be on Sky News. I wouldn't yeah, be on yeah, News. Yeah. Look how many times I've you know I've gone on Sky News about six, seven times a year. Yeah. I wouldn't be on talk radio. When these news organizations, they look for legit people and they yeah. look at your record before they invite you on. So if I if I'd have been in trouble with the, the SRA, they wouldn't invite me on. If I'd be in trouble in that, and that's the I, that's my whole brand. My whole brand is credibility. Mm-hmm. It's built on credibility. So it's built on honesty. It's built on speaking the truth. And you're right. You're right. It, 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 if like, so even on the BBC Asian Network, I've done a show for eleven years. We've never had a single off-com complaint on that. Yeah, that's good. And that's on the BBC Asian Network. Yeah, yeah. So what's the largest platform on the radio, really? So yeah, like you know, so it's. If I, you know, at that time, yeah, it's it's the callers that cross the line. Yeah. And then you have to tell them, look, this is where the line is. And this is where it is. And this is what you can do. And this is what you can't do. And if you do this, that is the consequence of that. And this is the consequence of that. And that's what we're there for, really. To, like I said, to interpret and navigate the law. Although the DC mentality is, no, this is a lawyer. He's going to help me break all the law and get me around all the gundia and do all of that. Because in India, that's the way it happens. Mm-hmm. Back home, that's the way it happens. But it doesn't, you know, it's, you have to, I mean, my whole life has been spent on telling people from back home that this is what you can do and this is what you can't do. And this is for your benefit and this is not. Whether they take it or not, it's up to it. For you, is the one call that stands out out of all of them? So like, obviously, as we see on social media, a lot of them do get clipped up and a yeah. lot of them are, are funny. Yeah. Um, but for you, is the one that sticks out like far and beyond anything else of like, this was the funniest one or this was the most outrageous one? I think I've just, I think there's about two or three that are my favorite. Uh, the one, first one is the one called Laddidi Laddo, where he goes, my, you know, uh, 
I got married in India, um, brought my wife home, and she ran away after three days. And she ran away with another legal immigrant. I'm like, bro, what am I? Am I like that guy who called, on Sky called the bounty hunter? <laughs> I'm a lawyer. What do you want me to do? Go out and find your wife. You know, I, I just about have enough with my own one. <laughs> with my own one. And he and I and he was asking, right, when can I have a divorce? And in this country, you can only get divorced if you've been married for a year. You can't get divorced before that. And he'd been married a couple of months before. And when I said, like, you have to wait a year, he was so shocked. Yeah. And I think he then he said, oh, many life, F to Gargi. And I was like, well, you know, you don't need to swear on TV, but yeah, if you want to know, she has. <laughs> so I, that call was one of the first ones to go viral. And then obviously the one about um the guy who's just got his visa after being married to a Polish girl. And now suddenly he doesn't get on with her. And then I told him, well, you know, you better go and woo her back. Otherwise, you, she's going to cancel your visa. And, uh, you know, take a few flowers home from Tesco. Don't take the <laughs> elephant data type of flower. And uh, don't take your mistress and go and romance her. Pick up a bottle of vodka. And, uh, you know, there must have been something that you got married in the first place. So I think that one, that's the love you, love you one, as we call it. And most recently, I think the, the last well, sort of one that stuck out was one that where he got a guy phoned up and he goes, buddy, can I have a girlfriend without being divorced? And I was like, well, yeah, but you need to ask your wife first. <laughs> and he was at, I mean, he was all right about it. He was like, nah, my wife's all right about it. And I think his wife was sitting there in the call and he was saying to her, do we watch like you? <laughs> well. And I was like, and he was like, yeah, don't worry. I've got loads of girlfriends. And I was like, man, funny everyone had a wife like yours. <laughs> <laughs> Some people are living at large, eh? <laughs> yeah, and I was thinking, you know what? I have a visa, but you're giving it some. <laughs> Is, is there sometimes where you, you have, like, obviously we were talking about the quick witness. Is there sometimes where you know when you've said, like, a line that, yo, this is going to bang, like, this is a good line. And there's some, like, that are more accidental. The one that I'm thinking more of accidental is, I remember there was a time that you were saying, um, explaining what STEM was, as in, like, the STEM sciences. Yeah. And, like, you were explaining it in the Punjabi <laughs> phonetics of the alphabet. And uh, you got to the T and, and it got a bit ropey, which seems a bit more accidental. Start and then I went... <laughs> yeah, then I, and you're right. As as I spoke, then then I realized, oh, you can't say that. Job, you're gonna have to check yourself. Yeah. <laughs> and you have to say E D and M, and you all know what M's for. And the M I had to stay had to be a bit <laughs> before because because of the double meanings. Yeah, there have been times like when I talk before you might. I don't know if you've seen my earlier videos. You'll see I was quite savage. Then yeah. I, look, I look back at now at myself and still say. Job, man, that was a bit too savage. That was a bit too rough. <laughs> and over the years, I've mellowed down a lot, and my savageness has turned into more like sarcasm, mm -hmm. irony, more like as you know, like oh, really, you know, this is what you're doing and stuff like that. I think it's more like, uh, correct me if I'm, it's more like British humour, isn't it? It's, it? That sort of like, um, yeah, it's sort of like <laughs> the office type humour, if that makes sense, when you watch yeah. it. And I think that's what resonates with like the younger generation or those like that are multicultural from born and brought up here. And whereas before it was just blatant in your face. Yeah. I don't know if you've seen like one where the guy's got an Italian girlfriend, but he's got a wife at home as well. And he goes, um, oh, I've got an Italian girlfriend to marry. And I'm like, all oh, happy thinking, well, that's brilliant. And he goes, well, yeah, but what am I going to do with the wife back home? <laughs> and I was thinking, oh my God, man. 
like you know how are you even thinking of this <laughs> he goes nah and I said yeah of course she's going to give you a visa isn't she that's why yeah. so that sort of humour became like very sarcastic but he didn't get it he thought I was like you know because Asians don't do sarcastic sarcasm at all yeah. Asians don't do sarcasm at all so they don't get sarcasm whereas before I would have just gone into like zero to chapel mode in about yeah. three seconds <laughs> like what is it and stuff like that. so yeah I look back on some of that now and I think you've mellowed now oh you know I have a lot more empathy I sort of begin to understand people and what they're sh- in, the, in their shoes was before I was young didn't have any kids didn't really understand and uh just used to fire off but now I've mellowed down a bit but I was thinking that recently I'm thinking should I go back to jumble mode yeah. it's like you know people are like uh, they're doing sort of jumble mode things now You've got a vote here. I, I would yeah, say definitely. Yeah. I get a lot of requests from people saying, Hajab, you need to go back into Jopal mode or you need to go back into the old Hajab. That was, and you know, th- those videos are better. And I'm like, well, I'm older now. And like, as you get, um, they say, Punjabi, we say, Joannichi Josh and Budapich Hosh. So as you get older, you get a bit wiser and uh, that sort of stuff. But it, I did have problems with that at first because a lot of people would say, you don't know how to talk properly. You talk rudely. And I'm like, hold on. You're saying to the guy who's telling you how to do this correctly, you're speaking rudely. The guy who's asking me, can he marry three people without getting divorced? <laughs> and that's what used to happen. People shoot the mess in our community, people shoot the messenger. Yeah. Yeah. So very much. And I used to think, oh my God, man, is this right? In any other culture, People would say, thanks for telling us the right thing and would appreciate it. In ours, it's like, no, no, we don't want to hear the truth. The person who's telling the truth, he's the one. Let's, let's you know, shoot him. Whereas a guy who's thinking of ways to cheat the system 20 times, yeah. so, you know, I used to get a lot of that. And that used to upset me a lot. And I used to, when I started reading comments on YouTube, that used to upset me a lot first in 2007, eight. And then, I, and then I sometimes I used to reply to them. And then I thought, you can't let this rule, you can't let social media rule your life. You have to rule your own social media. So now, very simple. I just developed a blocked and block and delete policy. I have that. It's good for your mental health. I don't I don't tolerate any sort of negativity. People want to say bad things to about me. They can say it on their own social media. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but to come onto my social media and start saying bad things they just get blocked and deleted and since i started blocking and deleting a few years ago no one really comes on and says anything because they think if we say anything then we're going to lose the privilege of watching this video the way i see it it's my social media i'm in control if i let someone watch my social media that's a privilege i give them yeah and friendship is like that it's a privilege it's earned if you abuse that privilege and take it away from you and you can look you know do it elsewhere so that's the way i see it now and much more happy for it since i started stopped looking at comments and all of that it's been really good but i do on other people's status where i find it funny and i can't help myself and i do add, add the odd comment especially on them ub1 ub2 i'm just yeah. stuff like that i just because i just think you know i'm i think one thing we'll probably agree on is i'm a guy who can't keep keep it in yeah so if I, if i've got a one line already i have to bust that I can't keep it in. I ha- what I say on my mind is what comes out of the mouth. I think in your youngsters' language, they call it no filter. Yeah, basically. Yeah, yeah I have a no filter. So a but filter I, I, I think that's expected with you because obviously that is part of your brand and personality. Whereas 
some of the comments that are probably left on majority of people's posts are from faceless people they probably got it's probably like their backup account their troll account or whatever yeah, where yeah. they just We're go on like, so yeah. as long as that like, people know like it's you and they can sort of take it with a bit of like tongue-in-cheek because they know yeah they you. know that this is what we expect from them exactly yeah. exactly he's got to come out of a one-liner otherwise got any money <laughs> that's it talking about mental health the last sort of topic that i want to sort of touch on was um your health complications a couple of years ago obviously you, you yeah. had the heart attack and and um f- firstly could we just talk about the the sort of way it happened because that's a it's not as like a a, a a sudden thing that you would think that like um when you think of a heart attack it was it was a bit of a different way that it happened yeah um i'm not sure exactly how it happened in 2016 i had an operation on my back I had a back problem. That was down to bad diet, bad health, a lot of traveling, not really caring about my weight. Worked out well. And since 2016, I've been very health conscious. I lost a lot of weight. And I was doing a lot of running, a lot of gymming. And um, I was quite looking after myself. In 2019, I went to West Brom on a Tuesday because the office there. Uh, I had a jacket potato with cheese and beans from this, one of the stalls there, right? the stand in the middle that's near the shopping center, uh, near the Tesco's. Came back home and just felt it as if it was sitting on my chest. And I was like, hold on, this is just sitting on my chest. You know when you've had indigestion? So then I came home, told mum, which was ah, probably not. And you know what mum's allergic to everything is, all the mums. <laughs> I was like, have a cup of tea. Mum, like, you know, got two months, have a cup of tea. Have a, have a cup of tea, son. So I had a cup of tea, thought nothing of it. Then on Wednesday morning, I woke up with the same sort of feeling. And I thought, I know what this is. I haven't been gym for a couple of weeks. So I'll go gym. Went to the gym, did a 5K run, sauna, steam, swim, come out, feeling quite good. Yeah. And Wednesday night, still had the niggling sort of thing. I told mum. Thursday, I do the school run. So even today's a Thursday, I've done a school run. And um, before I went to do the school run, my mum asked, have you still got that niggling pain in your chest? And I said, yeah, mum, I have. And she goes, well, why don't you go to hospital after you drop Cushy off? And then the hospital will be free in a day and you'll be out in an hour. So I said, yeah, I'll do that. And so dropped Cushy off, went to the hospital, drove there myself. First time in A&E ever, there's been no one there. Just me. So I was the first person, walked up to the counter. I said, look, I think I've got a bit of gas indigestion. She goes, all right, we'll get it checked out. Put me on a machine, read my ECG and said, you know, that's all fine. I think it is gas, but you go, because you've said you've got a little bit of chest pain, we have to do your bloods, we have to do a blood test. So they did a blood test. I'm laying there just on my phone. When they came back, the doctors were like, were in a bit of a panic and they were talking to each other and they said a word like troponin. Yeah, and I didn't know what the heck they're on about. So I just Googled troponin. And I read it, it said an enzyme that's released when your heart's under attack. So I thought, what? And I looked at a doctor and I said, what's wrong? And he goes, you got a problem with your heart. And I said, well, you better fix it. Because i got a school run to do in the afternoon. And he goes, you ain't going anywhere um, for at least two or three weeks. He goes, we're taking you into surgery. Oh, wow. So... You know, they started like going into cardiac sort of arrest, and I thought, at that time when he said that, yeah, I absolutely shit myself. I thought this is the end. You know, you think about loads of stuff 
my possessions, I all I saw was my kids, basically. Now, the year before, one of our friends in the music industry, DJ Gerps, he'd passed away suddenly. And I remember going to his funeral and it had a real effect on me. And in front of my eyes, the same vision came where the same layout of his funeral, but in the coffin, instead of him, it was me. And my wife and kids were there all dressed in black and they were crying. And at that time, my only prayer was, show me tomorrow's sunrise. Um, they phoned my dad. He came. Before it took me into surgery, my wife came. But I think my mum was obviously at home with my kids. And so my little and then was one. So, you know, like, um, he was one. And, uh, oh man, it was just like, so we, I said, my mum made photos of the Khalil menu on WhatsApp. Mm -hmm. I did a WhatsApp call to my mum. And it was the hardest conversation I've ever had without ever saying a word. So I was looking at her and she was looking at me. She was crying and I was crying. I just couldn't say anything. Nothing would come out of my mouth. And she couldn't say anything to her mouth. And at that time, I was just thinking, you know what? And no matter how old you get, for your mum, you're still that little boy. Yeah. Or that little kid. You know, or that little girl. So I was just like, I, I thought I was going to die. They took me into surgery. They basically cut me open like a bakra. So they cut you open from here. And uh, they usually take, because I was quite lucky. One, because on a Thursday, that's the day the cardio team are in the hospital that day. Otherwise, they would have had to take me to a different hospital. But yeah. they actually managed to go to that hospital. Secondly, when you do a bypass, they um, take a nerve from your leg, from the back of your, from your calf. So listen how weird this is. God's made your body, so you've got spare arteries in your calf, just as a backup, just as you have a spare wheel in a car. They serve no purpose but for that in a bypass. So when I woke up from my surgery, my leg wasn't hurting, and I looked at it, I said, Rick, hold on, you did a double bypass, where did you get the tube from? So the doctor goes, he goes, usually we were getting ready to cut your calf open and get the tube. He goes, but when we cut your chest open, luckily you had some spare arteries there. <laughs> it's just very rare that you had some spare tubing there and he goes so we thought we just use that and he goes that was stronger than the one we would have taken from your calf oh. he took that you know I had my bypass hardest ever thing really like I remember I was 44 at the time my kids were 1 and 2019 7 yeah so um, 7 and 1 uh, my kids were and all I just thought is mm. and um, you know for your kids yeah if you ask your kids who their hero is especially girls ask them who their hero is 99% will say my dad yeah I remember I was recovering from surgery I had about 20 tubes coming out of my body and my daughter came to see me with my family and she started crying and I felt so bad. And I said, you know what? Don't bring her again to hospital until I come out. I will come home. Don't bring her again. Because she was crying because her hero was laying there all wounded. And I couldn't hug her. I couldn't do anything. So I was just like, um, I, that was such a bad feeling. Such a bad feeling. Yeah. Like, I just felt I'd let her down. 
and I felt like, you know, this is really bad. And I remember the people around me, the other patients, they were quite old. And um, they were quite old. And um, they said to me, how old are you? And I said, I'm 44. They go, what the heck are you doing here? And I said, I don't know. No, you shouldn't even be here. And I said, I know. And um, they're like, sort of really rammed it into me. And that sort of gave me, look, ironically, that was came at a time when I was beginning to look after my health. But it was the years of neglect, all them years of enjoying myself at uni and afterwards, the car being, the bungalow buying and all that. Bungalow's great cardio, by the way, but not if you, not if you, uh, you know, complement it with a bottle of Bacardi. Got a little of lamb. Right, so uh, that, so I never bothered. And then after that, I've just, um, you know, it took me months to recover. And so when I was ready to go to the gym in March, April, 2000, yeah, then lockdown happened. So I couldn't go to the gym. Yeah. So now is the first day, actually, before we join this pod- podcast, the first day that I've been to the gym after my heart attack. Congratulations. And I was on the same treadmill that I'd been on a day before I had my before. Wow. Yeah. So that was like um, that, you know, I did the same routine and a lot of people recognize me and they go, you know, we, because do you remember like after, remember I was explaining to you the feelings Mm -hmm. after my daughter came to see me and stuff like that. I was still in hospital. I just thought, you know what, this has happened to me out of nowhere suddenly. Yeah. This could happen to anyone. That's when I sat down and did that video from my hospital bed that one that went viral and that's the biggest video I think that's gone viral mm-hmm. and I did that and I explained what happened to me and I just told people my age look you've got to watch out and look after yourself and after I done that video for a month up to a month after that I had so many messages from people saying Hajar, you know what thank you for that video we were driving back from the pub my dad had the same pain I mean you remembered your video and he said take me to the hospital and he was having a heart attack they saved him like five or six people got saved by just watching that video yeah and a lot of people rethought their lifestyles especially what i like to call the pub heroes especially who go down the pubs and can't do without a mixed grill and every friday they have to be down the pub and get langered you know and drink about 10 12 pints in order to do that i mean they drink it for starters so a lot of them begin to rethink their sort of life which is good because you know i always say like people said what will you do for your kids you ask anyone, what will they do for their kids? Anyone on your podcast, everyone will say, I'll die for my kids. I'll die for my kids. I don't say that. I say, I want to live for my kids. I want to see them get married. Yeah. I don't, why do I want to die for my kids for? I want to yeah. live. I, know. I want to live for my kids. I want to see them married. I want to see them happy. Then I'm ready to die. I want to go when I'm ready to die. You know, if I'd have died then, game over. None of this means anything then to me. And that doesn't mean to anything to my kids. So that's really what sort of happened. And I just told everyone, look, just be careful. And this is what you need to do. And I thought, well, let's try and get this information out there. And then that went viral as well. And I think people were just shocked and thinking, he looked all right at her job. And look, he, you know, all of a sudden he's had a heart attack. He's in hospital. 100%. That's, that's why I asked, because that video was so powerful. And, and again, like, thank you for talking about the story because i know you it's emotional obviously especially when you're recalling yeah, some of the yeah. some of the emotions but it's that that sort of drinking and partying 
culture is very much part of and, and embedded in our community whereas and some people don't see the bad side the dark side of it which is which is that that example right there and it, it obviously is obviously it's like an accumulation of years of it but it's uh, it's that thing of like in our community it's so <coughs> embedded that it's hard to get rid of and it takes some shock to the system to sort of get everything back in check it's almost like we've given our elders in our in their legacy have given us this culture of drinking and you know bad diet and poor diet we're not told about anything a diet we're not given any education as kids about what constitutes a good diet or a bad diet yeah, yeah. and we have bad diets the other thing is it's like all right if our parents did all of this it's not to give that to our kids we can be the change so you know afterwards i went to parties and all of that well then lockdown happened right so I've been to functions and I didn't like um, feel the need to drink there. Um, I still do have a drink now and again, but I don't feel a need to drink every Friday, every in a week, do all of that anymore. You know, I can do a lot of stuff without drinking now. Yeah. So it was like, it wasn't as if I was drinking every week anyway. So the mm. thing was, this is the thing I can't get my head around. When I was drinking every other day, nothing happened to me, mate. <laughs> when I started eating salads, I started drinking protein shakes. I'm on a heart attack all game. <laughs> <laughs> but it's the body gets used to it. So when you put a different thing in it, that's when it's like it doesn't compute what's going on. I think my body just thought, okay, listen, you need to go back to the old stuff, mate. Yeah. <laughs> what's this? We don't understand that. So yeah, it's you know, it's it is what it is now, and I live with it. And um it's okay. So just the other day, um, I'd had a couple of drinks and my daughter said to me, she goes, I don't want you to having a drink and because I don't want you going back into hospital. Oh, so man. can you see that effect that it's had on her? That's yeah. years ago, like two years ago, mm-hmm. well, one and a half years ago, me being hospital and she still remembers it. Yeah. I was like, God, man, I, you know, that's why I just felt so bad. I thought no one should have to see their hero suffering. Mm-hmm. And that's for us as well. When we see our parents in hospital and helpless and stuff like that, and we feel the same and that's how our kids feel. So it's up to us to stay in good health. You know, I'm not saying don't go out there, don't have a drink and don't eat. I'm the last person to say that. No yeah. one has drank more alcohol or ate more lamb curry than I have, <laughs> especially on a Friday night. But, you know, so, it, but there is a time when we need to think, you know what, this is having a detrimental effect on our mm. health. And even if like you can give it up for periods, right? so just try and give it up for three months and then give it up at a time, you know, have a, you know, try and give it up and then it it will help you it'll help your body it'll help your body change and i'm not saying give it up fully i haven't given it up fully but you know it's i'm not going to go on like the flexes that I was before and I, and I blame the culture for that but then i blame myself as well I, i'm not that foolish enough just to blame the culture mm-hmm. everyone takes a responsibility my culture is the same one where we dip, there are people who don't eat meat and yeah. don't drink yeah there are people who can have fun without doing all of that. Yeah. My culture, my religion tells me not to do any of that stuff. Yeah. Right. So I, people always ask me, are you religious? And I said, well, not really. How can I be religious? I do exactly the opposite of what my guru told me I should do. He told me, don't eat meat. I eat meat. He told me, don't drink. I drink. Yeah. He told me to live a balanced life. I don't live a balanced life. Yeah. He told me to pray and meditate. I don't do any of them things. So I'm probably the least religious person, but I'm a cultural person. And uh, 
you know, it's, it's just, um, I just feel that people need to do what they need to do. Get a health checkup, see how you are. These things, they, they don't knock before they come. So, you know, you could be dead in minutes. We've seen that this weekend with Christian Eriksen. Yeah. Right, yeah. the fittest, one of the fittest people on the planet. He's probably in the 0.01% of the fittest people in the planet. And look at that. You can't control things like that. It's so scary. I was watching that game live as well. And, and you just, it takes you aback, doesn't it? It really does take you back. It, it just brought, me, brought it back. It brought it all back. And I just felt scared. Yeah, yeah. I thought, blimey, if that's happening to him, you need to get to the gym. And it's because yeah. of that that I went to the gym today. Yeah. Because of that. And I thought, you know what? You need to get your ass down to the gym. And yeah. That's what I did today. And now I'm looking forward to going tomorrow. I actually feel good today. And I feel like eating healthy because you, it's that new baton new bounce in it right new gym bounce so i'm still on that and i'm gonna be happy and then tomorrow don't worry by next friday i'll probably be like egg <laughs> chips and beans again but yeah at least i you know i'm trying to do what i can because i just don't want to end up where i am i've you know i've had a close shave i've literally been at death's door and back literally i was minutes away the doctor said to me guys if you hadn't walked in in the next 12 hours you'd have been collapsed on the floor and then he goes, that wouldn't have been good for you. And, you know, he just, he just says, when he was showing me my x-rays and all that, all he was saying was, wow, wow. And I said, that's not a good wow, is it? And he goes, no, it's not a good wow. Because at your age, your arteries shouldn't be that blocked. He goes, your arteries are blocked. And um, he goes, now we're going to, we've cleared them for you and given you new ones. But you need to make sure you don't fall into the old habit. And lockdown hasn't helped. I think, I think obviously it hasn't helped in that aspect <coughs> of of like being able to exercise and thing but hopefully i think it has helped in the in the sense that a lot of people have reflected and and sort of took their health more seriously because it can affect everybody especially this covid thing that yeah. it makes people like reevaluate and similar things like the the recognized one show of highlighting all these up and air uh, and their sporting achievements. Yeah. Um, uh, that helps as well because then youngsters who are looking at that can say, I can be a boxer like Ender Bassi. I can be yeah. a power lifter like Andrew Baines and all these yeah. things. Yeah, so exactly. hopefully like onwards and upwards and we can sort of take our health a lot more seriously. I've thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed this. You were one of the people before I started the podcast that I really want, like you were a dream guest for me. So oh, I, <laughs> I, I really, really enjoyed this. But the last thing I do just before we wrap up is quick fire questions. It's five yeah, questions. I love quick fire and I love uh, answering them. <laughs> yeah, it's just five questions every well, guest. But we'll go with the first one is what are you most proud of? My kids. What are you most looking forward to? uh living a long life <laughs> hopefully um what is your biggest motivation once again now it's my kids before it wasn't before it was my career now it's all about my kids 100 percent. what is your definition of success my de- definition of success is when you can walk into a room and that's it and they know that's that's and that's it. All you need is for four people to say, Jangaya. And after you die at your funeral, people are thinking, Jangasi. That's that's success. That's powerful. Yeah. And uh, the last but not least, because it's the Culture Cast podcast, how has your culture affected you in your life so far? It's molded me. I am what I am because of my culture. My Punjabi, which I read and write, 
um, which they wouldn't accept at A level, being the only boy in the whole borough sitting my exams on my own. Um, my Punjabi music, uh, you know, that um, I get a lot of influence from that. Punjabi films, Punjabi comedy, I get a lot of influence from that. And my ability to communicate with everyone, my whole job relies on commun communicating and bridging the gap, whether it's in English or in Punjabi or in Hindi. So my culture is part of that. Without my culture, we, I have no recognition. I, I, I just become another somebody. And I say that to everyone, that you should read and write your language. A lot of people, they're a bit like, oh, we love the music. And I'm like, do you even know what he's saying in a song? I'm like, no, not really. And all that, he's talking high end. I said, listen, you need to learn to read and write it and get your kids to learn to read and write. There should be no excuses. And you're never too old to learn. You could be 40, 45, and you can still read and write and learn Punjabi, learn to do it. And get your kids to do the GCSE and A-level. Because currently, GCSE and A-level Punjabi are a threat of being taken off the exams. And there will be none because of the low intake which is quite surprising considering you see how many people jump up and down to Ghana and pretending to understand it. But we need to do that. There's a lot of people who have sacrificed their lives to get that introduced. One of them being J.S. Nagra from Coventry. And, you know, um, he spent his whole life getting these introduced GCC and level Punjabis. And it'd be a shame if we destroy his legacy. So get, get your kids to do it. Do it if you can. If you want a pastime, if you want, you make them learn Spanish and French and German, in it. But or Hindi or whatever your mother tongue is, Gujarati. Yeah, but get that, get your kids to learn that. Because once you've learned that, then they can attach themselves to it. And for me, it's all about the culture. I've made, you know, a career out of my culture, I've made a reputation out of my culture. But more importantly, I've had a good time with my culture, whether the good aspects or the bad aspects. My culture is very complex. It's not the best culture in the world. Yeah, and it has some real bad things. The ones stuff that we talk about on Recognize One. But it's up to us to repair it. No one from Sadab, If your own house, in your own house, right? Our own backyard, if it's messy, we have to clean it. People from outside aren't going to come and clean it. And look how clean we keep that. Every day, because we live in it. Our community is the same. Whether it's Handsworth, whether it's Southall. Instead, what we do is... We grow up in these communities, and then once we get a bit of basi, we move out. If we just kept it clean and kept our whole community clean, then these places would be just as top as they were when our parents first came to this country. The South was the same. We have a job to keep it clean. We, have a, we can all work together and keep our culture clean. That's the idea, to have our culture right at the top. Our culture isn't at the top as much as we think it is. Only in songs it is. Everywhere else it isn't. <laughs> no, that's, that's powerful. And and yeah, I completely agree with pretty much everything you just said. So, um, and again, <laughs> that's one, yeah. Um, and again, I, I really thank you for your time. I know we're obviously busy bandana all that. So uh, cheers for, for carving out the time. I'll say the same thing that I said to the doctor when I was in hospital. Better sort it out. I've got the school run to do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, I'll leave all of your links for social medias and things in the uh, the description. Whether you listen on Spotify, Apple, YouTube, the full full shebang. Uh, 